What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast. What the hell is going on? Mark, what the hell is going on? What the hell is going on is there are increasing rumblings that Donald J. Trump is running for president again in 2024. The Biden administration seems to be in free fall. There was a Quinnipiac poll that showed that he had 38% approval, which is low even by Trump standards. And he was underwater on every single issue for the first time, from taxes and spending to the Afghan withdrawal, to foreign policy, to his role as commander in chief, to the southern border, and even COVID, which has been his strong suit in all the polls. Even on COVID, he was underwater by two points. And so Biden is limping along. Democrats can't even get his basic legislative agenda through Congress. They're afraid that they're going to lose the 2022 midterms, lose control of one or both houses, which would put Republicans in with a veto over the Biden agenda. And then looms Donald J. Trump, who is threatening to run for president again and become the first president since Grover Cleveland to have lost an election and then come back in four years to win it back. And there are a lot of people who are starting to get terrified. So I will tell you, Mark, if you had said to me in January when we were watching the inauguration of Joe Biden that in nine months we would be talking seriously about the prospect of a Donald Trump comeback, I would have told you you were out of your mind. And it is a testament, I think, to everything that's gone wrong over the last nine or 10 months that this is actually now becoming an oft-talked-about possibility with all of the attendant hysteria and hyperbole about the end of our democracy that has come with it. And look, if you had told me in January that in nine months, Joe Biden would do the damage that he has done (laughs) to the country from unleashing a crisis on the southern border that is the worst in two decades to unleashing inflation with all of this government spending to the worst foreign policy debacle either of us can remember in our careers and having a bipartisan infrastructure bill that his own party has taken hostage with his blessing in order to get through some socialist spending bill that has no chance of passage because of Joe Biden and Kristen Sinema. I mean, it just seems like one debacle after another. And we're only nine months, 10 months into this presidency. We've got three years to go. That is what is making the possibility of a Trump comeback so possible. Even people who like Donald Trump were exhausted by his presidency. And I think that what is going to push us away from that is the too early, too fevered hyperbole about the fact that the prospect, even the prospect of Donald Trump is so bad that in fact our democracy will not be able to survive, that our constitution, which has survived slavery, war, assassination, cannot withstand the prospect of a potential Trump presidency, and that if Republicans 
in fact, do take back the House and God forbid the Senate as well, that this will be the harbinger. This will be our 1933 moment. This, I think, will drive people who were heaving a sigh of relief in January that the president was gone, even though they liked his policy. This is going to drive those people back to him. A hundred percent. And look, the reality is our institutions held during the Trump presidency. Trump was not a threat to our democracy in any real sense, because the things that he did in office that were most excessive were often overturned by the courts. And that at the end of the election, when he didn't accept the presidential election, it's not like there was any real threat of a military coup, like the military was not going to join him in keeping him in office. He had no path to stay in office. The judges that he appointed, including those for the Supreme Court, didn't vote to uphold his claims of electoral fraud. In fact, in case after case, they turned them down. His own vice president would not participate in the effort to send back the electoral votes to the states. So the idea of any kind of a coup fizzled because our institutions held. And to be honest with you, the bigger threat to our institutions isn't from Donald Trump coming back. The bigger threat to our institutions is that anything might happen to Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema, because they are <laughs> literally, literally the only two people who are standing in the way of really what would be an institutional coup d'etat, which would be getting rid of the filibuster, adding states, remaking the Supreme Court, passing laws to completely federalize our electoral system, and then passing cradle-to-grave socialist spending that would turn us into a European-style welfare state. The Democrats pose a much more fundamental threat to our institutions, and literally only because of two people, one of whom comes from a red Trump state and the other one who comes from a, not a purple state, more of a pink state in Arizona, who are not down with the Democratic plan to change our institutions and gain power permanently, that's not happening. So I'm more concerned with making sure that we have some more checks and balances on the Democrats than what Trump might do in 2024. Well, I still hold out hope that there will be a candidate, a Republican candidate for whom I can vote in good conscience in 2024, as you know. But I think the problem here is that there isn't sufficient ownership of the understanding of who is eroding our institutions, of who is actually driving a lack of faith in our institutions, whether it is, you know, Hillary Clinton's machinations after 2016, or it was Stacey Abrams claims that she actually won the election in Georgia, all of which we have managed to memory hole in our growing hysteria. Uh, because rejecting about, an election is only a threat to democracy when Republicans do it. Well, so <laughs> perfect segue. So both of us read an article that I think we found absolutely fascinating that really tries to sort of dispassionately look at this question. The headline is, if Trump wins in 2024, then who threatens democracy? So we thought we would get the author in to talk a little bit about what we've all been talking about around D.C. for the last couple of weeks. Holman Jenkins is a member of the editorial board of The Wall Street Journal. He writes their twice weekly business world column. He is a much awarded, much admired journalist, and we were lucky to get him. Here's our interview. Well, Holman, welcome to the podcast. Hi, great to be with you guys. So you just had a great piece in the journal. You always have great pieces in the journal, but this one in particular caught our attention, where you asked, what if Donald Trump wins? Tell us about your column and what you're trying to get across. 
Well, I'm just trying to put out a different scenario than the one that everyone is preaching from every mountaintop and in front of every cable TV camera that if Donald Trump runs in 2024 and loses, we'll have a national constitutional crisis because he and his supporters won't accept defeat and will resort to violence, legal shenanigans, and uh, things like we've seen in the last year, except much worse. But the problem with all of this scenario is that it depends on Trump to lose and he might win. And then what happens? There's another side to this, which is, if anything, even more virulent in its demand that Donald Trump not be allowed to serve as president, that this would be the end of democracy in America and to justify any means to thwart it. To me, that is the more dangerous scenario now. If you look at the average Trump, pro-Trump crazy, they've had their cathartic moment with the 2020 election and the January 6th riot. If they've learned anything, they've learned that the Capitol Police are going to be ready next time. They're going to be authorized to use a lot of violence against them. The law enforcement is not going to give them a pass. Every charge in the book is going to be thrown at them. But what has the left learned over the last five years after Charlottesville, after the Black Lives Matters riot, after the Portland riots, and a whole bunch of things along those lines is that, you know, they're being told that if Donald Trump is reelected, this is the end of democracy. I'm more worried about violence from them than I am from the Trump forces at this point. That's an interesting argument to make. And I think it's something that all people rightly worry about, given the numbers we've seen on the rise in crime over the last year or two during COVID, but I think in some ways separate from COVID. But for me, I guess the big question that you raised is this one about election integrity, that basically the charge that is being leveled, and you called out a bunch of folks, you know, David Plouffe, David Axelrod, Rachel Maddow, you know, these tribunes of the Democratic Party, for emphasizing at all times the notion that Trump would not accept, Trump and his people would not accept a legitimate election. But what it has seemed, at least to me, is that the Democratic Party that controls Congress in both the House and the Senate is actually the one that is most fixated on changing election integrity, on taking states' rights away from them, and on actually giving us a reason to believe that elections may not be legitimate. Yeah. Well, first of all, the names I mentioned, I mentioned specifically in the context of the Russia collusion hoax and the fact that, you know, we have all these reports now. You have Mueller, you have the uh, inspector general of the Justice Department with multiple reports. You have these John Durham indictments. By now, we know that this thing was completely cooked up by Democrats. There was no substance to it. And all those people promoted it from day one to delegitimize the 2016 election. That's the context in which I mentioned them originally. And you're right. Democrats have moved on from there to try and basically tell a narrative that any election they don't win is an illegitimate election because of voter suppression, because we didn't enact the full panoply of rules that they introduced at the beginning of the new Congress in H.R. 1, even though, as you say, this would be completely to upset the election system we've had in this country for 200 plus years. It would take away the right of states to set their own election rules. It had no chance of passing. It wasn't going to get past a Republican Senate. It was put out there simply making an argument, ah, you have not enacted these rules. Therefore, any election outcome is illegitimate unless we happen to win. So, you know, and that is a continuing narrative on the Democratic side on side of the anti-Trump Republicans, too, that a vote for Donald Trump is not a legitimate vote. I don't know if you caught the Fiona Hill. She was a national security advisor to Trump on Russia. She's a Brookings Institution person. She gave an interview to Politico.com the other day, said that, and you have to follow everything she said, if Trump is successful in mounting a comeback in 2024, 
democracy is done in America. This is to say that if Donald Trump actually succeeds and wins a majority of the voter, a majority of the Electoral College, we are entitled essentially to have a violent insurrection because his legitimate victory is a defeat for democracy. I don't know how you can say something like that without taking on yourself responsibility for violence that is going to ensue if Trump has a legitimate victory. She was on TV again on Sunday, basically saying that the January 6th was a precursor to more violence to come. Well, maybe it is. Violence has existed in our politics for a long time. We've had assassinations. We've had protests that turned violent. This is part of every democracy. But it seems to me that the real danger now is the one that she is fomenting by delegitimizing the possibility of a Trump victory in 2024, three years in advance, which is to encourage everybody on the Democratic side not to accept such a victory. Well, you also point out that the, you know, the House, as you call it, the voting rights kabuki of the past eight months, that they knew that they had no chance of passing this because Joe Manchin and Cinema are not going to vote for it. So they don't have the votes to do it. So you raise the question of whether they're doing it as creating talking points to delegitimize a Trump victory one day. Those talking points have been continuous. It's a party-wide strategy. And so I think H.R. 1 is just part of it. I have to say that also on the other side, you have Republicans who have been enacting voting reforms around the states. Many of these are relatively pedestrian and modest reforms and even actually expand over existing law what people are allowed to do. But nevertheless, Republicans are busying themselves in this area because they have to somehow put themselves in line with many Republican rank and file voters who believe the 2020 election was stolen. So at least they can say, look, we're acting on your concerns. So you have these two narratives out there that both parties are bending towards because it works with their voters. On the Democratic side, it's, you know, any election we don't win is because of voter suppression, specifically the suppression of the African-American vote, and therefore you should not accept that as legitimate. On the Republican side, well, we've got this party leader, Donald Trump, who says the 2020 election was stolen from him. So look, we're fixing it by changing all these rules. Those narratives are powerful and they're out there and they're very dangerous on both sides. And I can't say how it is possible to claim that the Republican side is more dangerous or more prone to violence in this matter than after what we've seen for the last five years from Democrats. So I want to sort of come back to this question of Russia, because I think I should have, first of all, I should have gone to it first, because it actually predates January 6th. It obviously predates the 2020 election. In fact, it is about the 2016 election. And you know, what's been very interesting to me is you mentioned Fiona Hill. I've known Fiona a long time. I like her very much and I respect her work. I was very surprised to hear her say some of the things she said, especially because she was talking about her background as an immigrant and the way that things work in Russia. It was a strange look through the looking glass moment for her. But the other person who wrote a piece that I think got a lot of us talking is Bob Kagan, who is another you know, good friend, somebody who I admire and like very much on our neighbor at Brookings. And I went back and looked at Bob's piece prefatory to talking to you. And I went looking for Bob's mention of Russia collusion, because, of course, if you <laughs> want to talk about the illegitimacy of the Trump administration, you ought to bring that up. And yet there's no mention of it. Just take people back for a second to what happened with the Russia collusion accusations and why they deserve more attention than they have been given, particularly now. Well, you can't address the concerns that were in the Kagan piece or in the Fiona Hill comments without recognizing that for a large part of America, 
They've taken the Russia collusion sham to heart. They see this as a conspiracy to delegitimize the president they elected in 2016. They had to live with it for three years. They've seen you know, how it was embraced by the media without any real serious evidence. You had this concoction, the Steele dossier of unsupported claims. You know, Anybody can say anything. That's not what makes a claim credible or legitimate to be reported to the public. They saw how that all of those safeguards against just baseless charges were waved aside so this could be put into circulation via the FBI, via Adam Schiff and all that. And then they saw it all unravel before their eyes with the Mueller report, with the Justice Department Inspector General pulling apart the whole FBI activity of this. And now you see the Durham indictments showing how this was concocted as a, you know, a set of knowing lies by uh, Democrats to try and discredit the Republican candidate in 2016. And then that the Republican president after he was inaugurated. So they've seen this for three years. This is not something that happened overnight. They have taken on board in large parts of America that there is something deeply, deeply sick and corrupt and criminal going on in Washington that a president can be attacked this way. If you don't see that their willingness to believe the worst about the 2020 election stems from this prior experience of the Russia collusion hoax, then you understand nothing about what's going on in America. You cannot write the piece that Kagan wrote or you'd say the things that Fiona Hill said with a complete analysis in your head if you don't understand where the other side is coming from. On the Democratic side, there is no acknowledgement that this even happened. They won't talk about the evidence. They won't talk about the Inspector General report. They won't talk about the Durham stuff because they're all implicated in it. There's nobody whose hands are clean. And so you cannot have a career in the future in the Democratic Party if you admit that Russia collusion was A, a hoax, and B, the worst political dirty trick in American recent history. So you're talking about the Russia hoax. Tell us a little bit about Michael Susson. Michael Sussman is a lawyer who worked for a Democratic law firm, the same one that hired Glenn Simpson and Christopher Steele to create the Steele dossier. This lawyer, Michael Sussman, was also employed by a pro-democratic computer industry executive who wanted to promote this alpha bank theory, the theory that the Russian collusion was happening between the Trump campaign and the Kremlin through the servers of a Russian bank, completely concocted story. And so Michael Sussman, you know, he organized a bunch of white papers making this case. He delivered it to the FBI, got the FBI to open an investigation, and then made sure the investigations existed was leaked to the press. Michael Sussman, in the process of doing this, did not tell the FBI that he was working for the Clinton campaign, that his motive was to promote a story damaging to Donald Trump using the FBI. The FBI should not want to be in that position. And so he by John Durham, the U.S. attorney who is investigating the whole collusion farrago. He has charged Sussman with lying to the FBI for withholding the you know, information that he was doing this on behalf of the Clinton campaign. That's where we are now. And that is, I say, just a tiny, tiny smidgen of the whole confabulation of the collusion story. Well, talk to us a little bit about what we found out from this Durham indictment of Michael Sussman, because this directly implicates the Clinton campaign, doesn't it? Sure it does. He was in the pay of the Clinton campaign. He was charging them for all of the hours he devoted to this, which was a small, tiny passing piece of the whole collusion hoax, which was the claim that the Trump organization computers were in some nefarious relationship with a Russian bank servers and were communicating through them to the Kremlin or something. Nobody actually explained what was supposed to be going on there. It was all just cooked up from a tendentious interpretation of miscellaneous internet traffic, mostly apparently related to marketing 
providing Trump hotel services to Alpha Bank employees who were, you know, users of Trump's buildings when they came to New York, when they came to Washington. That's all it was about. They concocted this whole theory that this was election collusion going on through these servers. They sold it to the FBI, or that if the FBI opened an investigation, you could then go to the press and say, aha, see these things we've been feeding you that you won't report because we have no support for them. Now you can report to the FBI as investigating them. That was the whole purpose, was to get it into the press, this story about Trump-Russia collusion. And, you know, this is just one small part. We got a 27-page indictment from Durham on this small part showing a connection to a certain computer CEOs from certain internet researchers who were in the employ of government and using access to confidential data to concoct this story. And we know that they were directly in the pay and consulting with Hillary Clinton campaign officials in the pursuit of putting this stuff in front of the FBI to create this canard. It may not be illegal, but it's definitely a political dirty trick the American people want to know about. They want to know how the Russia collusion thing that took over our country for 30 years was concocted and promoted and by whom. And Durham is going to provide that information. It doesn't matter if nobody goes to jail, as far as I'm concerned. I just want to know the truth. You've written about this a number of times. Certainly, there was some reporting about the Durham indictments, but I think generally speaking, this has gotten very, very little attention. And that, of course, only feeds this whole notion of the wider America out there believing that Washington and media elites and financial elites are all part of some, you know, let's nicely call it an effort to actually suppress information. How does anybody deal with that? How do we face up to this? It's an interesting question. Personally, I think the best solution is for John Durham to do his work and for it to be put into the public sphere. And if he gets convictions on some of these charges, it's going to be hard for the country to ignore it. You're right. The press has ignored it. It would have been the greatest story in history if Donald Trump had actually been a Russian agent. They devoted a huge amount of effort to trying to expose that story, even though it didn't exist. It's another great journalistic story if all of that was concocted by Democrats and foisted on the country, the FBI and uh, the American people as just an invention, just a thing that they fabricated out of whole cloth in order to destroy a political enemy. That's a great story too. And that's not a story that our media wants to tell, even though unlike the whole collusion story, we actually have lengthy hundred page government documents in the inspector general report from the justice department outlining some of this. We have two indictments from John Durham and naming Democrats and an FBI official for illegal activity in promoting the Russia collusion scam. We even had the Bob Mueller task force on behalf of the United States. People went and looked for the collusion uh, evidence and found none and basically cleared Donald Trump of any kind of deliberate conspiracy with Russia. We have all of this information on which you could build a story of solidly reported facts about how this collusion canard was invented and propagated through the American society by Democrats, by the media, by FBI people. And nobody wants to report on it, even though it's the greatest political story in our history, I think, or at least in the last hundred years. Well, you know, it's fascinating because to listen to the left, Donald Trump's failure to accept the results of the 2020 election, even though he left office, but continue to question whether, you know, not question, openly say that it was stolen, is the greatest threat to our democracy in the history of our country. But Hillary Clinton essentially said the same thing. And then you had the Democratic Party spend the first three years, as you say, questioning Trump's legitimacy, weaponizing the FBI, have special counsel for all of the horrible things that Trump has said and done. I don't see Republicans running around trying to undermine the Biden presidency. I mean, he's doing it himself by his incompetence, which is worse. 
Uh, you know, this is a question I asked in my column. You have a president or a former president, as in Donald Trump, who spins conspiracy stories and lies about the 2020 election. And some of the things he says fall into that category, as far as I'm concerned. You have one guy doing that, or you have an entire national establishment, including the FBI, the CIA, the Democratic Party, the Obama administration in its last days, and the national media also doing the same thing, spinning lies and conspiracy theories to damage an enemy. So I see Trump on one hand, one guy, with a terrible reputation, who for 40 years was considered something of a joke. Then you have the entire national establishment, on the other hand. They're both doing the same thing. They're both engaged in the same shameless, dishonest, and completely corrupt promotion of lies in order to gain political advantage. I think on the whole, I'd rather have it be one guy than have it be everybody who I'm supposed to be able to rely on to uphold the law and the national security of the United States. But I would rather it was neither of them. <laughs> I wish we had more you know, Eisenhower's and Adlai Stevenson's in our political process than Trump's and Hillary Clinton's. Trump's redeeming quality, as far as I'm concerned, is boundless cynicism about American politics and American politicians and the things they do and say. And I think, you know, Hillary Clinton justifies in spades that cynicism. I wish that it weren't so, but we could use a whole lot better political class in both parties. Right. But I mean, you know, I'm not a fan of either Eisenhower or Adlai Stevenson, who was a kind of a nasty anti-Semite. But it does beg the question, look, you know, when you see you know, what was what was Donald Trump's election about? I don't think that even people who dislike him intensely and even people who believe that he was pouring around with the Russians, I think even people who believe the worst about Donald Trump recognize that his election was a repudiation of Washington. It was a repudiation of political elites. It was a repudiation of the status quo. And what you lay out is basically, yeah, you're right. The status quo sucks and they were right. And the Democrats are in some ways right too. You know, Donald Trump also sucks and is engaged in lying. What the hell is a good American supposed to do? And where exactly is the silver lining of our political system that will tide us through this moment until all of these horrible people are gone? You have to wait for the moment to wash through. That's the only solution that I can uh, think of. You know, I mean, it's ironic because uh, Donald Trump brought so much baggage to the presidency, could be criticized on so many legitimate grounds. It's borders on bizarre that the entirety of the Democratic Party decided, let's instead invent a fake grounds to criticize him. Let's paint him as a Russian spy based on no evidence or evidence that we concocted in our own little opposition research lab. It's bizarre. It's as if the enormous, giant, sprawling establishment of the United States government media said, look, Donald Trump gets away with telling shameless lies. Let's do it, too. I just cannot understand why they decided that the best way to counter Donald Trump was to emulate him. But that's where we ended up. Now, it's an, an incredibly frustrating. I mean, look, and the other thing that's interesting is, you know, when I'm reading Bob Kagan's piece is that he's basically saying that if Trump runs and loses, there's going to be like a revolution of some kind. But he had the reins of power when he lost the last time and didn't exercise them in some way to hold on to power. He couldn't do that. Is he more of a threat from outside if he loses the election as the former president who has no power, no authority as commander in chief, nothing else? Is that more of a threat? Or have we seen the worst of what he could do? I think you're absolutely right. The whole Trump is a threat to democracy thing is a product of hysteria and hyperbole. You know, he's not my ideal president, but there's no basis for any of that. 
There was no problem keeping him in check through the checks and balances of the system, through legal appeal. The Democrats took over the House in 2018. You know, they defeated him in 2020. They took the House and the Senate, or at least they got a tie in the Senate. And all through, the, you know, the media did its job. And then some, not only did they criticize Trump on legitimate grounds, they invented fake grounds to criticize him. And it's the same thing with the Fiona Hill concern that if Trump wins in 2024, democracy is over. There is no basis to believe that the checks and balances of the system aren't going to work to contain him just as they did before. Trump is not a highly capable operator. His one political strength is that he has this relatively impoverished and weak and outside the mainstream backing in the 40% of America that has no money and no clout. So he's got a public. He doesn't control the other levers at all. He has no institutional support from the institutions that matter, the universities, the media, the permanent bureaucracy. They're all against him. He's always going to be a president who is going to get very little done. And to that end, you have to point out Unlike most presidents, he showed remarkable fidelity to the promises he made when he ran, and he gave people a lot of what they wanted. And, you know, if his presidency had ended at the end of 2019, instead of 2020, it would have been a remarkably successful president. He probably would have plotted to re-election, and there would have been no basis to challenge it because it would have been a 60-40 election because the country was doing fine, the economy was booming, everything was great, and presidents tend to win by big margins in those conditions. It was only the COVID that came along after all the Democrats did to undermine Trump with this Russia lie. COVID saved them. You know, the first global pandemic of that seriousness since 1918, that was the bit of luck that saved him and put Joe Biden in the White House. The other thing is that, you know, people point Trump as being such a threat to democracy and threat to our system and our institutions. If it wasn't for two Democratic senators who were refusing to get rid of the filibuster, they would be adding states, packing the courts, federalizing our election laws and passing trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars in socialist spending. It's like the Democrats are creating Trump too right now. They're a bigger threat to our institutions that is only being held back by like two fingers in the dike of Kristen Sinema and, and Joe Manchin. And then on top of that, because they're pursuing this radical agenda, you know, Joe Biden ran on a campaign of saying, I'm going to unite the country. I'm going to bring back normalcy. I'm going to bring back civility that by pursuing this radical agenda they're creating a groundswell for Trump to come back, aren't they? Yeah, I agree. You know, it's uh, ironic that Biden actually had a strong mandate from the Democratic primary voters. It was a mandate to be a centrist from the general electorate. It was a mandate to be a centrist from the people who voted the Congress and the, the House and the Senate, almost right down the middle. It was a mandate to be a centrist. It's amazing that he could just throw that over that, you know, that the norms that you can trample on and get away with it without criticism, if the media is on your side, is truly remarkable. Trump does not come close. Trump says a lot of tasteless, tactless things. He gets very little done. Much of what he accomplished was pretty much ordinary for a Republican president, some deregulation, some tax cuts. You know, he fiddled with foreign policy a little bit in a way that most people now think was about right to get serious about China, to get the Europeans funding more of their defense and to get out of the Middle East. Well, you know, that's the Biden policy now. Trump's norm violations were all cosmetic, whereas the Democrats' norm violations are deeply institutional. And yet, because the media is on their side, nobody notices or acknowledges it. What you're saying is exactly right. I think a lot of us are very fond of an article that Dave Barry wrote many, many years ago that was entitled How to Argue Effectively. And it had a lot of excellent pieces of advice about using Latin and, Making up uh, statistics. and, uh, and, very, <laughs> and very specific statistics. Exactly. But 
of course, the trump card, if I may call it that, was that Dave told you, if you were really flaming out, if you were losing an argument spectacularly, the right choice was to turn to your opponent and say, that sounds suspiciously like something Adolf Hitler would say. And this is the irony, because, of course, actually, this man who I think a lot of people are trying to tell us is our American Hitler or our proto-Hitler, we had him in power for four years. And, of course, he wasn't Hitler. He was neither competent enough nor bloody enough. And even the biggest disgrace, which was the January 6th assault on the Capitol and the effort I think the genuine effort on the part of Trump and others to actually overturn the election ended up being more disgraceful, more embarrassingly paltry than, you know, any sort of a Russian revolution of 1917. But it does leave us with a question, which is, if this is Hitler for the left, how how is there ever going to be any comedy again? Yeah, well... They do it because it works, because there's a market for it. I mean, I, I'll mention Fiona Hill for the third time. She's got a book to sell. Politico and CBS News get clicks by putting up in big type her quotes about how Donald Trump is the enemy of democracy and, and the end of the world if he's reelected. There's a market for this stuff. And I cannot emphasize too much that the media is the big part of the problem because their whole business model, instead of on advertising and selling you cars and detergent, is now selling you extreme hyperbolic claims about your political opponents. And so that drives a lot of this. I don't know what the solution to that is, but to me, it's like the crack epidemic in the 80s. The people who survived it were really repulsed by what happened to their friends, neighbors, and family members. And so they turned away from crack. I hope at some point, Americans are going to just be repulsed by what they've created with their political hysteria and will turn away from it too. God willing. Yeah, inshallah. Well, Coleman, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It was fascinating. It's a great piece. We'll link to it in the transcript and hope everybody reads it. And we're grateful for you for joining us. Great. Thanks for really talking great. to you guys. So, Danny, look, my personal view is that Republicans would be better off if Donald Trump decided to be a kingmaker rather than a king, and that there was somebody who would pick up the banner of Trumpism who wasn't Donald J. Trump. And the reason for that is is that if Republicans want to win the election, they've got to make it a referendum on Biden. And that's true in the midterms coming up, and that's true in the 2024 presidential election. And Trump makes everything about himself. And the reason he lost the last election, I think even despite COVID, I think he could have won the election if he had just said something to the effect of, look, I know that I grade on people, but did you like your economy before the COVID pandemic hit? Who do you trust to rebuild it? Said he made it a referendum on himself and his bad behavior. Trump makes every election a referendum on himself. If he hadn't made the election a referendum on himself, Joe Biden did the brilliant strategy of hiding in his basement for the entire 2020 election because he didn't want the focus to be on him. He said, let Trump have the stage. This is the path to victory. He just hid in his basement and let Donald Trump stand out there and make the election about him. And it was a referendum on Trump and he lost. If the next election is a referendum on Joe Biden, looking at the polls right now and how people think he's doing, Joe Biden's going to lose I think that's part of the reason why you're seeing the resurrection of Donald Trump in the press. It's not just what Holman said about clickbait. It's also because Joe Biden is floundering, because his agenda is floundering, because the party has been taken over by the far left. And I think a lot of the sort of the graybeards of the Democratic Party recognize that they kind of are off the rails. 
what better strategy for them than to go back to the number one bogeyman, the person who unified their party, the person who brought them all of those defectors among suburban moms, than Donald J. Trump. And of course, Trump is all too willing to cooperate. For me, I want to end on this, as I always do, with this unbelievably depressing question, which is, we've got Trump out there saying he won the last election and bullying people and supporting primaries against people who won't tow his stolen election line. We've got Joe Biden, who has repudiated his mandate and embraced the squad's agenda. If you are just a a man coming down from Mars or whatever comes down from Mars these days... (laughs) (laughs) if you're you're Jeff Bezos no 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 that's not right if you're a man coming down from Mars do you have faith in this system when you look at this I mean you don't you look at this and ask yourself who the hell is going to save us if you came down from Mars and looked on earth you'd say what the hell is going on It's it's an absolute debacle but look all this overwrought fears of our democracy, never coming back, never being able to survive a second Trump presidency, our institutions held under him. Again, I go back to that. The courts held, the Congress was a check, the media was a check, often too much of a check and a bias check, but there are plenty of checks and balances. And if Donald Trump is somehow elected again in 2024, then the system will hold. And if Joe Biden gets another term, God help us, hopefully there'll be more checks and balances than two Democrats, you know, who I literally pray for every night as I go to bed for their health and safety and well-being, then the system will hold. Well, on that optimistic or that slightly more optimistic note, let us both bless Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin and thank our listeners <laughs> for being with us. And we'll see you next week. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell@ai.org, Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Um.